We've been beginning this year by hearing our vision for Hollywell Church. We did so last year, and I thought it was good to begin the year again by hearing our vision. Let's not just hear it, let's see it. I think we can have something up on the screen. We've been hearing that we are a church that must be looking up. In other words, we must be depending on God and doing all for the glory of God. We've been hearing that we must be a church that is reaching out. There are people who tragically don't know Christ. And outside of Christ, there is no hope. There is no eternal life. We must be reaching out to them. And then today we're hearing we must be a church that's coming closer. Closer to God and thus closer to each other. Following the Lord Jesus more closely and therefore walking together more closely in life. If you're part of this church, I hope you're interested in what we should be like as a church and what part you should play in that. I hope that's really important to you. The same for if you're visiting from another church. If you're not part of the church, and actually this doesn't sound at all interesting or relevant to you, please think of this. We live in a fragmented world. There are so many things that drive people apart. There's war and racism and family breakdown and pride and greed and all sorts of things fragmenting and driving people apart. The Bible's good news is that Jesus was the Son of God who came into this world to reconcile us to God. And that reconciling people to God also brings people together. And the church should be a demonstration of God's reconciling work. So please listen in to hear this good news of God's reconciling work. This morning what I want us to do is to see unity pictured in Psalm 133 and I hope that will motivate us to pursue unity. And then, much more briefly, a little bit about how to pursue it. Unity practised from Ephesians 4. So, most of the time in Psalm 133, it would be a big help if you could have that in front of you. Just turn to the middle of your Bible and you're probably in Psalms and find 133. Or if you've got a church Bible, there's page numbers on the blue sheet and some notes to help you. Unity pictured in Psalm 133. Verse 1, how good and pleasant it is. Let's pause there for a minute and have a think just about those words. How good and pleasant it is. You go to the newsagents and you buy the biggest bag of Haribo's Tangfastics that you can find and you go home and sit on the sofa and eat and eat and eat and eat until in one sitting they're all gone. Was there any enjoyment in that? Yes, of course, there's a sort of enjoyment. That's what kept you eating. There's a sugar rush. But is it good and pleasant? When when the bag's empty, do you say, oh, I'm glad I ate all of them in one go. That was good and pleasant. No, not good and pleasant. The next week, you cook roast dinner. It takes a lot of effort, cooking roast dinner. And then you sit down to eat roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, and broccoli, and carrots, but not too much. You restrain yourself so you don't overeat. You exercise some self-restraint. Now that was good and pleasant. That was good and pleasant. 
may not have the sugar rush of the Haribos, but it's certainly more good and pleasant. What am I talking about? Bickering, gossiping, fault-finding. They're like the bag of Haribos. There is a strange sort of sugar rush enjoyment about that tasty morsel of gossip. So is treating the church as all about self. What's it in, in it for me? How do I feel? Is it done the way I want? It's like the bag of Haribos. There's a sort of enjoyment, but it is not good and pleasant. Unity is like the roast dinner. It takes effort. It takes work. It takes restraint. Restrain that sin. Restrain that me, me, me. Restrain that fault finding. Restrain that gossiping tongue. But it is good and pleasant. Unity is like the roast dinner. Good and pleasant. Let's see four things about this unity from Psalm 133. Here we go. Four things about unity so we get the picture, so we're motivated to pursue it. First of all, what is happening in this psalm? The answer is in the title. Do you see the title? A Song of Ascents. If you look back to Psalm 120, all the psalms going back to Psalm 120 are all songs of ascent. They were all for singing on the way up to Jerusalem. They talked about going up to Jerusalem. And so as they ascended up to Jerusalem, they sang these songs together. Now, you need to know this because in a minute we're going to see verse 1. It says brothers. And you might think it's just all about a family. But no, it's about Israelites going to worship. They'd been on the way from their various homes and now they are nearing Jerusalem. Verse 3, it's called Mount Zion. Now people from across the land are converging on Jerusalem. They're coming together. Why are they coming together? To worship God. Can you picture? Try to picture in your mind, there's the land of Israel. Maybe picture a map. And picture there's the people, they've been travelling across here from north and south and east and west and now they're physically coming together. As they physically get near Jerusalem, it's bringing them all together. It's a bit like, let's have a picture, it's a bit like children, have you got one of these at home? Well probably not that one because that's a very expensive one. But you've probably got a, have you got a bike with a wheel? And where are the spokes of the wheel closest together? The spokes are closest when they're right next to the hub. The spokes are us, the hub is God. The way to bring us closest together is bringing us to God. It's all a picture for us. That's, uh, we can get rid of the picture actually. That's Old Testament people of God. They had to travel together to Jerusalem. But it's a picture for us. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem. But it cannot be overemphasised that Christian unity and fellowship is not just clubbiness, socialising, drinking cups of coffee together, having a nice community feel. No, Christian unity and fellowship is people who know God and who desire God and who want to worship God and... That shared experience and aim is bringing them together. Do you see how that's pictured by people coming across the land to Jerusalem together to worship God? Now, we don't have to travel to one city. 
No, but we should have this knowledge of God, experience of God, aim for the honour of God, brings us together. That's Christian unity. It's not just socialising. There's what they're doing. But now, who are they? Who are the people doing this? The answer's in verse 1. Verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. They're called brothers. But it's not just one family. No, these are Israelites coming together to worship, but they're called brothers. In fact, back in the book of Deuteronomy, it says all Israelites whether they were slaves or criminals, or even actually not real Israelites, they were born elsewhere, but they've come in and joined the Israelites. They were all called brothers. And the church is just the same in the New Testament age. Read through the New Testament and it keeps on saying the church is a family. And the people in it are called brothers. That includes male and female, so you can say brothers and sisters if you like. But as you read the New Testament, the Christians keep calling each other brothers. Why? Why? The language of the Bible has been chosen very carefully. Why do they call each other brothers? Because you are only part of the church if you are a child of God. If God has adopted you into his family. Uh, We could consider this building that we're in now as like our family home, because we meet as a family in it. But coming, and it's to be a family home that is open to everyone. And anyone is welcome into it, whoever they are. But coming into the building doesn't make you part of the family. What does make you part of the family? God adopting you as his child. Oh, you might say there's a restriction. You've said not everyone is part of the family. Not being in this building is part of the family. True, but I've also just told you good news. What good news? That there is such a thing as God adopting people as his children. That you could say, God, I'm an outsider. I've just been told I'm an outsider here and I want to come in. But I've sinned against you. I've treated you as if you're a nuisance. Please, please, because Jesus died for sinners, forgive me and welcome me in and even adopt me as your child. Could you pray a prayer like that? Would you mean words like that? God will hear and answer words like that. And then those who are children of God are brothers, are sisters. Now, let's have a think again about that word. It implies relationship. It implies commitment to each other. What verse 1 calls, have a look at verse 1 again, what verse 1 calls living together in unity. Let's have a bit of a think about this living together in unity, about the church being called a family of brothers and sisters. I'll try to illustrate it this way. The church is a family having its meals together, not a restaurant. This is a good way to think of it. The church is a family having its meals together, not a restaurant. You go to a restaurant, what's it about? It's about you being served. You go in, and there's other people, they are paid to serve you. That's what happens in a restaurant. And when you go to a restaurant, usually there's going to be other people in the building. 
How much do you have to do with them? Probably nothing, do you? You just hope it's not too overcrowded and they don't disturb you. They get on with their meal, you get on with your meal. Leave us alone. When do you turn up to a restaurant? When do you go? Well, presuming you've got the money for it, when you feel like it, you choose. I feel like it today. I don't feel like it tomorrow. I'll go when I feel like it, if you've got the money. What do you do if you don't like the food at the Toby Carvery? Don't go. Go to the Priory instead. It'll cost you more. Food's probably better. I'm not allowed to advertise. But you get the idea, don't you? You choose. Go where you like, where, you, where the food's better. Are family meals like that? I hope not. I hope not. If they are, your family needs a bit of adjusting. Because it's not good for family meals to be like that. First of all, they're about togetherness, not just the food. The other people there aren't people who just happen to be eating their food. You get on and don't disturb me. It's supposed to be about togetherness. Now, that doesn't mean you're always able to all be together. Sometimes your daughter may be out visiting a friend. Sometimes a parent is late home and the others have started without him. But surely you try to have that your family meals together are at together as much as possible. Not a subgroup together while others are always absent. That will start to fragment your family. It's not good for your family if people just consistently choose to be absent from some of the family gatherings. And what do you do if you discover that three doors down the road the cooking is better? Stick with your family. Because it isn't just about who is the best cook on this street. It's about who is your family. You don't go off and say, from now on, I'm going to number three down the road. Because they're better cooks down there and it's better food. You stick with your family. Which do you treat the church like? A restaurant or a family having its meals together? Which do you treat the church more like? We're a family having our meals together. We're a restaurant where I come to be served. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we as elders try not to have too many church events because then you become like a restaurant. It means it's not then reasonable to expect people to be present at them all. So it becomes a you choose which you opt into. That's why we want to limit it to three main events a week. Sunday morning, our main time of worship together. Sunday evening, our main diet of being taught together. Thursday evening, our main time of praying together. Alternated with home groups where it's our main time of discussing God's word together. Is that reasonable? Those are our three main family meals. That's a genuine question. Not to answer now, but please do talk to the elders about that. Because we want to be not a a restaurant. Here we go, we're providing seven things a week. You opt into what ones you want. But a family that says, here's our three main meals. We think it's reasonable that people should try to turn up to our three main meals a week. If it's not, please talk to us. Because we want to be a family. But then in Psalm 133, we get two pictures of this unity. We've had, what are they doing? They're on their way to worship. Who are they? They're brothers. Next, what are they like? And there's a picture 
in verse 2. I'll describe it to you. United brothers are like this. When Aaron was made priest, he had oil poured on his head. Not car oil, but special oil poured on his head. Enough that it would run down his hair and run down his beard and run down onto his clothes. Do you like the sound of that? No, I can see some heads shaking. Children, you like the idea of enough oil poured on your head that it runs down where well, you probably haven't got a beard, but down your clothes. Yeah. What on earth is that all about? Well, who was Aaron? He was the priest. And that makes him a picture of Jesus, the one true priest. What was oil a picture of in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. And at the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was poured out on him. Now, what's all this about the spirit, uh, about the oil running down his head and running down onto his body? The spirit runs down from Christ onto his body. What is the body of Christ? The church. The church, you're starting to get the picture. The unity of the church comes from being united to our head, Jesus. And he's the head, we're the body. The Spirit is poured out on him and he gives the Spirit to us. And that is what unites us together. That is the picture in Psalm 133. That is the prayer of Jesus in John 17, which we're hearing this evening. And that is what is explained in Ephesians 1-4, to which I hope we can get on to in a few minutes. There's one picture of unity. Here's another picture of unity in verse 3. Actually, before we get on to verse 3 and its picture, notice this. I'm going to give you a a more literal translation. Verse 2. It is like precious oil poured on the head, descending onto the beard, descending onto Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were descending on Mount Zion. Did you see the word that is in there repeated, that our English translations somehow miss a little bit? Descending. It's telling us unity is something given from God. It comes down from God. It's a blessing given by him. Now, what is this blessing of unity like? Verse 3. Verse 3 tells us what it's like. In one word, dew. It's like dew. Children, do you know what dew is? Do you get up early enough in the morning to go outside and put your hand on the grass? What's it like? It's wet. Put a finger on a leaf of the tree. What's it like? Wet. Dew is the moisture in the air overnight that has settled on the grass and on the leaves. Now, England is a wet country, so we don't think dew, that's really good. We think, dude, that's a bit of a nuisance. I wanted to sit down. But the psalm was written in the Middle East. So much of it is dry and barren and yellow and hard to grow food in. But there was this place, Mount Hermon, that was a place of moisture and green and life and food growing because it got heavy dews. It was wet. Are you starting to get the picture? 
The picture is unity is a blessing that comes down from God, like the Jew. He gives it and it is life-giving and it is fruitfulness-producing. In fact, I think we're going to see this evening, uh, it's a picture of this. Without this unity, we cannot spread the life-giving gospel of Jesus. Okay, I hope Psalm 133 has made you think the roast dinner is good. Put down the bag of Haribos. Put down the bickering and the gossiping and let's pursue, let's cook the roast dinner of unity. How do we do that? I'm going to have to be much briefer. Let's turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. So we've had unity pictured. Now we've got unity practised. Ephesians 4. I'm going to try to be brief here. Do you remember that picture of the oil running down from Aaron's head onto his body? Well, that's what Ephesians 1 to 3 is. Chapter 1 is about being united to Jesus and receiving his spirit. Chapter 2 is about that uniting us together. Chapter 3 is saying, and this is a This is connected in with God's life-giving plan for the world. Ephesians 1 to 3 is like an expansion of the picture of air and oil body. And then Ephesians 4 says, verse 3. Following on from all that, Ephesians 4 says, verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. God gives it, now we've got to make every effort to keep it. How? Well, chapter 4 gives us four ways, and I'm going to just try to briefly point out to you the four ways. Here's the first, have an attitude like Jesus. Have an attitude like Jesus. Verse 2, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. One of the themes of Ephesians is the church back then was made of Jews and Gentiles. And they were really culturally different. And they had different ways of doing things. And so, when they had a church lunch together, which by the way, it seems they did all the time. They did loads of eating together. The Jews got really upset if you turned up with pork and expected to share it around. And the Gentiles didn't know what the Jews were talking about when they started quoting the prophet Jeremiah. They'd never read him. There were all sorts of differences and ways that they could easily fall out and just be impatient with each other. They had to do verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Aren't we similar? We're a church of people from different cultures and backgrounds. And Ephesians 3 says that's really good. And we're a church where some have been here for decades and some have been here for a year or two or even less. We're a church where some know how things are done here. Just from years of experience, we just know it's like automatic to us. And some think, why on earth do they do it that way? It's a bit of a mystery to us. We're a church where some find the noise of so many people being here on a Sunday morning uplifting. We're a thriving church. Others find it's a bit overwhelming and it's quite distracting. In other words, 
we've got many reasons we need to do verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. By the way, we can't do verse 2 if we're not spending time together. Just can't do it, can you? If you're not together with each other. It's in things like home group and Sunday fellowship lunch and going for a drink together and serving together. That's where verse 2 gets practiced and tested. Okay, here's the next thing. If we're going to pursue unity, the next thing is having leadership in the church. Did you expect that one? Verse 11. We need leadership in the church. Jesus has given some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. There are two places in the New Testament that say the church is a body and it is to be a united body. One place is 1 Corinthians 12 and the other is here, Ephesians 4. And they both say leadership of the church is important for this to happen. Why? What are these leaders to do? What do the people in verse 11 have in common? Verse 11, there are apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. What do they have in common? They are all people who speak the word of God. They are all people who pass on God's message. And that's needed. For various reasons, here's one. Verse 14 tells us there are people who teach things that are untrue. There are people who teach all sorts of ideas that are not true. And so we need leaders who are going to teach us the truth. You see, the approach to church unity today is often this, downplay teaching. If people say they're Christians and they seem nice and sincere, well, just accept that. Let's not probe what they believe. Let's not probe what they teach. Let's just sweep under the carpet if there are any differences. Because we must stay united by downplaying teaching and belief. Ephesians 4 says the opposite. It is completely opposite to that in Ephesians 4. It says to be united we need to be taught. To be united we need to be clear on the truth. To be united, we need to be clear what matters and what doesn't. And that requires teaching. And so to be united, we need to give the leaders of the church opportunity to teach us. Isn't this pretty obvious? However much the leaders of the church might teach on a Sunday evening, if you're not there, they're not teaching you. If most of the church isn't there, they're not teaching most of the church. And so Ephesians 4 doesn't happen. Jesus has given leaders to teach us so we are a church united in our beliefs, united around the truth about Jesus. Here's the third thing. If we're going to keep united, we need, thirdly, it's not just the leaders who speak the truth. We all need to be speaking truth to each other. Verse 15. Verse 15. 
instead speaking the truth in love, we will, we, notice, will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. The picture is these people who are all speaking the truth in love to each other and it unites us together. Now, what is speaking the truth in love? Luke has a new haircut. By the way, if you're called Luke, I'm not singling you out because I've tried to pick a name that I'm not aware of anyone here being called. Luke has a new haircut and he says to you, do you like my haircut? What do you think of my haircut? You say, I must speak the truth to you in love, brother. (laughs) You look like a tribute actor, ABBA, the 1970s band. Their Their music may be good, but their haircuts are not. That's speaking the truth in love, maybe. But it's not this, verse 15. It's not what verse 15 means. No, it's not that sort of thing. Speaking the truth in love here means speaking the truth of the gospel. Out of love to each other. We speak to each other God's words. The picture here is a church united by the leaders teach the truth and the people speak to each other God's words. They encourage each other to do it. That's why we've got Sunday Fellowship Lunch in a little while later today. We've heard God's word and we encourage each other to do it. We even rebuke and correct each other when we're not doing it. But it must be because we're united and love each other and it must be done in a verse 2 way. Do you do this? Do you give others the opportunity to do it to you? We can't if we're not making the opportunity if we're not spending time together, if church is just a restaurant we dip into, get our meal and clear off. Last way, I'm trying to hurry, last way we pursue unity, us serving, serving. You may have noticed I skipped over something earlier. Verse 11 I referred to, there are leaders given and they speak God's word. And I said they speak God's word because there's false teaching that they must counteract. But there was another reason given first. They speak God's word for another purpose. It's in verse 12. Verse 12. Leaders speak God's word so that, verse 12, God's people are prepared for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. Do you see the pattern? Teaching so we serve together. And that serving together unites the church together. United in our head, Jesus. A church united by us serving each other and together serving Christ. Remember, the church is a family meal, not a restaurant. You turn up to a restaurant, who does the serving? Other people, not you. These days, even at McDonald's, you can get table service. Have you noticed that? Maybe you never go to McDonald's. Yeah, even at McDonald's, other people serve you, and you can even get table service now. But a family meal, I hope it's not other people serve you only. Someone does the cooking, someone lays the table, someone clears up afterwards, someone washes up. Isn't it best for everyone to muck in and serve together? Maybe you're thinking, oh, I wish my family did. It's all left to me. But isn't it best if everyone mucks in and serves together? That's what the church should be like. A family meal. 
Not turn up to be served at a restaurant. Do you look out for how you can serve? Now, don't be too rigid and narrow about this in your ideas of what service is. Looking out for someone on their own after the service and going and, going and talking to them, that's service. Going and getting to know someone that you don't really know, that's service. Managing to get your children to church and encouraging them to engage, that's service. As well as the more obvious, running a children's group, being on the welcoming team, that's service. A church, what a good picture, isn't it? A church that has leaders given by Christ who teach the truth. So we believe the same things. But we also put it into practice and we serve together. And as we do so, we grow towards our head, Jesus, which means we're brought together. Well, there's much more that could be said. I'm sure you realise I haven't covered the whole subject, but we've got to stop. Talk to each other about it. Discuss it over lunch. Be practical. Think about how you should respond to it. But behind the practicalities, remember this. Get a taste for the roast dinner. Yes, I hope you get a taste for the roast dinner and put down the bag of Haribos. In other words, get a taste. Unity is good and pleasant. Put down the bickering and the gossiping and the me, me, me. Be motivated by Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity.